This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Today, we're confronted with perhaps the most extreme form of forgiveness there could possibly be. Eva Schloss lost almost everything, and yet she's forgiven the Nazis. How? Eva Schloss is the 91-year-old stepsister of Anne Frank. Her childhood and all she knew was stolen. She and her family were hunted for years wherever they fled. She was just a child but forced to learn new languages in foreign lands, bullied by teachers and pupils for her foreign accent. Her father and brother didn't survive, and she ended up in a concentration camp, witness to extreme violence and murder all around her. But she lived, battered, mentally and physically. Ava is on a mission to talk for her family and the millions of others senselessly slaughtered by the Nazis and their European accomplices. Ava said, forgiving is most difficult because the human consciousness has a hard time living in the present. In her latter years, Ava has become a prolific speaker on the horrors of the Holocaust and tells us what true forgiveness means and how she found it. She grew up in Vienna, but then when the Germans annexed Austria, she fled with her family to Belgium as an 11-year-old and then on to Holland. She lived in the same apartment block in Amsterdam as Anne Frank, and the girls, only a month apart in age, were sometimes playmates from aged 11 to 13. But in 1942, both girls went into hiding to avoid the Nazis. But in May 1944, Ava's family were betrayed by a double agent in the Dutch underground and transported to Auschwitz. But she and her mother were freed in 1945, barely alive, by Soviet troops. She thought she'd been made infertile by that endurance. She didn't have periods for years. Thankfully, they returned, and she's now a mother and grandmother. And she's unburdened herself of any hate toward the perpetrators of the crimes committed against her and her family. If she can forgive how and what was taken away from her, surely we can too? Yom Kippur is the time of year that Jews ask for forgiveness from God and fellow human beings. Could you forgive like Ava? With many thanks to my good friend Rabbi Yosef Vogel and his Centre for Jewish Life for this incredible interview opportunity, you'll hear Yosef towards the end of the interview with his insights. Now, here's Ava Schloss. From Great Britain via Israel to the world. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now. Well, thank you very much for your introduction. And, um, yeah, I've um, lived a long time and I've experienced a lot of wonderful things, but as well, unbelievable horror. And, of course, it leaves its sign on my uh, way of looking into the world. Let's just bring it back to today. In this country, I think it's fair to say that British Jews experienced a visceral form of anti-Semitism that they had never done before with the election of Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party and the genuine threat that should he have won the election in December 2019, which thank goodness he didn't, that our very future existence in the United Kingdom was under threat. Can I ask you, 
in this four years of quite quite considerable pain for the Jewish community here, could you feel parallels with what you experienced in Vienna and Amsterdam as a child? Not at all, not at all. I know people are starting to be afraid here and upset about it, but as always say, this is really nothing. And you know, unfortunately, anti-Semitism has always been and will always be, I don't know why, but it is a fact uh, through the centuries. And um, you know, this is just, it's in the language, so it's something which is inborn in the people, but it is nothing, I can't even mention it in the same breath, like what has happened under the Nazi time. So I must say, it doesn't really bother me. And I must say, personally, my family and me have really not experienced any anti-Semitism in England. Now, you lived in the same apartment block in Amsterdam as Anne Frank, and you were only a month apart in age, and uh, you were sometimes playmates together in uh, early teenage. And then in 1942, you both went into hiding to avoid the Nazi effort to capture Jews in Amsterdam. Now, your family was captured by the Nazis after being betrayed by a double agent in the Dutch underground and transported to Auschwitz. Your father and brother didn't survive the ordeal, but you and your mother were barely alive while you were freed by Soviet troops in 1945. How did it feel to have left your home city of Vienna to try and create a new life in Amsterdam and for that to happen to you even as you fled from where you were used to? Well, that was, of course... A terrible, terrible time. I was a very happy little girl in Austria. I had an older brother who was um, very, very, uh, like older brother should be, very protective of me. I was sort of a wild child. He was much more um, a, a bookworm, and he read to me all his stories, which he was reading, and... Um, we really we had grandparents, cousins. It was a really wonderful family life. And then to go to Belgium, um, we were glad we got out of Austria, but many, many of our family members didn't because it was by 38, it was already very difficult to get visas. The German Jews had already gone to England and Holland and France and everywhere. And most of those countries didn't really want any more Jews. So only if you were somebody special was it easy to get visas anymore. But we were still lucky and we were first in Belgium and then my father actually lived in Holland and we were in Belgium. And of course, when the war started, my father tried us to get as well to Holland because in a war borders will be closed and we might not be able to see each other. So in 1940, so during the war already, February 1940, we got visas to for three months to visit my father in in Holland. So we lived, like you say, on the same. Um, it was really not an apartment block. It was a whole area of, of um, modern little buildings. And um, there, I was 11 years old. But of course, you know, I had to learn first French, then I had to learn Dutch. And um, so it was very, very difficult to be accepted by the other children and even by the teachers. 
And um, so I lost all my confidence, um, I became shy, I felt withdrawn, but the Dutch were very friendly and eventually I settled down. But of course, the Nazis invaded. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the measures against the Jewish people started to come. And for two years, we lived in fear to be arrested. And in 1942, 10,000 young people got a call-up notice. Um, they have to come to a certain place with a backpack. They give an exact list what they have to bring to depo- be deported to Germany to work in German factories. By that time, by 1942, most of the German Jews had already been deported to ghettos or to camps. So why on earth should the Germans want more young Jewish people to come to Germany? So that was the time when Anne's father, Otto Frank, and my father, and many other Jewish families decided they wouldn't send their young people, but we would go into hiding. Well, I was just 13 years old, and my father called us together, and he said, Heinz, we are not going to send you, we are going to go into hiding. But we couldn't find a family who was going to take it four people. So we have to split up. I will go with my mother and Heinz will go with my father. And I started to cry. I didn't want to be separated again. And my father said, um, we have to do that because it's safer to be separate because the chance the two of us will survive is bigger. Survive. So with 13 years, that was the first time I think that I realized it is a matter of life and death. And that was pretty scary. But this is what happened. We split up and we went to two different addresses. But nevertheless, in May 1944, we were betrayed and My mother and me looked very Dutch, and I was very, very miserable in hiding. I I couldn't occupy myself because I was more sporty than intellectual. And um, um, I missed my brother and my father. And um, so my mother decided, and my father spoke on the telephone, that we would visit them from time to time so that I have something to look forward to. So we visited my father and brother who had just been gone to a new hiding place and they followed us so they knew where we were as well. So all four of us were betrayed at the same time. And actually we were taken to um, um, first to be interrogated and then to Westerbork, which was a holding camp. And if you would have stayed there, it was 44. So if you would have stayed there, Everybody would have survived, of course. But, you know, the Nazis didn't just um, round up Jews. So as well, 500 gypsies have been rounded up at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that sounds perhaps not very nice, but the Westerbork was run actually by Jewish people with supervision of Nazis. And so um, the Jewish... 
director, the chef of this camp, I was told on Wednesday, I want a list on Friday, who is going to go on transport. Can you imagine this man had to pick out the people who he was going to send to his death. But uh, unfortunately, of course, there were those 500 gypsy and so of course those were the one which he picked at first and filled up the transport with new jewel arrivals and that was one of us as well. So we were very short time in Westerbork and sent already on transport. Not knowing, of course, they never told you where you were going. It could have been a labor camp where people were working. It could have been Treblinka. It could have been Auschwitz. Could have been anywhere. It was Auschwitz. I mention this because even though it was the most notorious camp of all the 300 death camps, at least there was a selection. In Treblinka, for instance, there was no selection. The whole transport, without even being looked at, went straight through tunnels with flower baskets, straight into the um, guest chambers. So, I mean, only after the war did I realize we were actually lucky to have got to Auschwitz. I, I didn't think I'd ever hear those words in a consecutive sentence. Uh, in my life, but here you are living today because of that fortune. Um, hearing you talk in such frank terms about your family and being such a young girl, losing your confidence, being forced to learn new languages, not being accepted by your teacher, and being, you know, the kind of the salt of the earth of a, a, of a pluralistic society just as Jews are today who live in freedom in London and in Paris and in Los Angeles and New York and Cape Town. You were born in 1929. Was the anti-Semitic feeling swirling around you even from your birth? Did you experience it in Vienna as a child as well? Um, there was, of course, anti-Semitism, but because there was a mayor who was very anti-Semitic, but nevertheless, they Austrians were actually uh, very sophisticated people and they realized through Brigham because it, in the First World War, Austria was the biggest empire in Europe and the Kaiser was as well very, very clever and he invited the Jews from his big empire to come to Vienna knowing that there were writers and poets and musicians and scientists and so Vienna was full of really the cream of the intellectual world. And so a lot of people appreciated that. There was beautiful theaters, there were wonderful exhibitions. Tourists came from all over the world to see all this. So there was, of course, some anti-Semitism, but in generally they were accepted and, and well, well, well regarded. I must say, I had not experienced never any anti-Semitic word or anything. But immediately, as soon as Hitler marched in, the population changed 
from one minute to the next. That was unbelievable. They stood in the city with flags and Heil Hitler salute and really welcomed Hitler. And um, just two incidences. My brother, who was 12 years old, um, after a couple of days, he came home from school. All his clothes were torn. His face was completely in blood. And when my parents in shock asked him, what on earth has happened to you? He said, my own friends did that. And the teachers just watched it, let it happening. And I went after school. My best friend was a Catholic girl. And I always I was on the way home. We stopped off there and I went to play with her. But after the Nazis entered Werder, the next day, um, I went back, not expecting anything had changed. And the mother opened the door and screamed at me, we never want to see you here again. And she slammed the door in my face. I was in shock. I couldn't understand. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about... Douglas Murray. Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to be truth tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either Patreon.com/slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. Ko-fi.com/slash Johnny Gould. My grandma tells a story in Vienna in the late 30s about a housemaid that was part of their family who suddenly turned around to her father and said, I refuse to work for Jews anymore. And he said, get out, get out of the house. And this was a woman who had been part of the family for very many years. And so you think about Klimt and Wittgenstein and you think of Freud, and then you think of Viennese sophistication. And then you say, turning on a sixpence, they welcomed the Germans in with all their hate. How can this happen in a so-called sophisticated environment? You know, when I hear this, 
and I've heard it before. I just, I can't compute it. You know, you were there. How could this possibly happen? Yeah, for, as I say, from one day to the next, they changed completely their attitude. So I have been to Anne Frank's Eves, which is the, probably the best way of describing it, a tiny, tiny apartment's not the word, in the eaves of the roof of a house in Amsterdam, stuck there for two, betrayal. Two years, of course, two years. <clears throat> we went the same day because Anne's older sister got the call-up notice like my brother. So we both had to, and many other people, um, had to disappear or sending their children. But unfortunately, not everybody had foreseen that and hadn't found a hiding place. So many, many, many parents did send their children, hoping perhaps they really were going to work in Germany. But of course, they never went at all to Germany. They went to Austria, to Mauthausen, which was a horrific death camp already in 44 and 42. And with stone works and they were just thrown down from the cliffs. And the Dutch have a big monument there for those first young victims who were murdered by the Nazis. Now, Eva, you are a prolific worker on behalf of narrating very, very important history. But you didn't talk about your experiences in the concentration camp until you, you, your father's death in 1980, having experienced your stepfather's emotional involvement with Anne Frank and the preservation of her memory, you felt compelled to take on the responsibility. Was it part of the mourning process that you felt that the baton should be handed to you? Um, well, you know, he married my mother in 1943 and I was already married. It was a married and a German immigrant who had, um, had escaped to Palestine at the time and he came to England to learn um, economics and we lived in a boarding house. Yeah, well, coming back from, from the liberation um, by the Russians, we must tell you this a bit. Um, I came home. Otto came home, we were both liberated, we both did the same travel right to Odessa because you couldn't go to the west yet, so we had to carry state in the east. And eventually in June 1945, we arrived back in Amsterdam and waiting for Otto for his two girls. He knew already that his wife had died and my mother and me for my brother and my father. And we had no idea what had happened to them. We knew they were in Auschwitz, but where were they now? And um, we, went, we put adverts in the paper. We went to the station. Every day people came from Germany, from Poland, from all over, um, back to Holland. And eventually in July, we got a letter from the Red Cross, very informal. Um, we have to tell you to my mother that your husband and son perished in Mauthausen mm. several days before the American army came to liberate that camp. That was like a death sentence for me. 
Yeah. I had really hoped all the time we would be a family again and eventually life would go back how it used to be. But when I realized that will never ever happen, I became more depressed than in the camp because in the camp I had to use all my strengths to stay alive because I thought we'll get back eventually to the same life as we had had before. But when I realized it can never ever happen, I wanted to commit suicide. I found even a note which I written um, when my mother died, she had it, um, date 1st of January, 1946, where I said, life without my mother and my father is completely useless and I don't really want to carry on living. Um, so in the camp, I never ever thought of giving up. But mm -hmm. afterwards, I was more miserable because I realized how can I exist without my family in a strange country because we had lived really in freedom only a few months in Holland. Then we were um, already occupied and then we were in hiding. So Holland was for me a strange country, really. And um, I felt completely lost. And I was full and full of hatred, of course. Mm -hmm. We went later on holiday to Switzerland um, because Otto had family there and I heard German, which was my mother's tongue. I felt like ice. I couldn't stand even the language. So it was really extremely hard to try to make another life again. Yes. You know, when I talked to my grandma who lost both her mother and father in the concentration camp of Chelmno, according to the Red Cross, I, she talked to me in very graphic terms about having to say goodbye to them at Vienna station at a train station heading for Prague and that she had what can be best described as a nervous breakdown when she came to England without any money at all but just her sister who lived nearby and they were housemaids. They were around 30 years old and then something deep inside them made them want to live reconstitute their lives find mary and that's 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 what they did they settled down they lived in uh, in one room in sutton coldfield which is uh, on the outskirts of birmingham and they started to rebuild their lives and when i think about the progress they achieved in birmingham by 1955 they had their own shop and business they had their own home with a mortgage my, my grandpa won the pools because he was a football expert. He won something like 400 pounds. It was a lot of money. And he bought a fridge and a television and all these kind of beautiful things. They had two children, my mother and my uncle. And they got their lives together from nervous breakdown to my grandma was joyous. It's a very strange thing. She, you know, obviously me as a grandchild, as a young grandchild, was a, yeah. a very you know, big, big focus of joy. And you know, I want to talk to you about your, the depths of despair that you had and that you, like my grandma, have reached for forgiveness that has enabled you to rebuild your mentality, rebuild your life and produce such a, a purposeful life in, in your 90s. Just give us a, an idea of how you can go from the depths of despair to forgiveness and then this purpose. 
Well, it took me a long, long time. But of course, as I said, I was married in 1953. In 1956, we had the birth of our first daughter. And that was for me actually a big change of my attitude. That was a miracle. Because, you know, um, I have to tell you, in the liquid we got in the camp in Bromite, that was in our breakfast, um, we didn't have our monthly period. And when it came to having children, nothing worked. And so I was desperate. I wanted to have a family because I thought then, you know, I have the continuation of life. And um, so eventually I went uh, to the hospital and had treatment and I was pregnant. And then we have two more daughters or three daughters. And I got busy, you know, with three little children. And, but I must say, um, I was still full of hatred. Mm. But I wasn't like that. There were people who said they wouldn't buy a German car or they wouldn't even sit in a German car. And, um, and I started to long for Austria, my homeland. My mother would never set foot there. They said she threw us out. I'm not going to go back there. But I longed for the mountains, the lakes where I was so happy. And we went as a family to visit that country as tourists. You know, we had no family, nobody which we knew. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so slowly, slowly, but I didn't speak nor to my family, nor to anybody else about my experience. Um, I just thought I couldn't burden them with what has happened. You know, little happy girls, why should I tell them? Of course, Otto Frank was their grandfather and he talked continuously about Anne, and, but he didn't explain who Anne was. So it was always when they stayed with the grandparents, there was always pictures of Anne and things about Anne and books about Anne. And who is this Anne, you know? So it was a bit spooky for the children. And even now they have still got sort of complexes about this. Um, But you know, you don't know till you tell them that a little girl died. And you know, it's it's very difficult to make decisions like that. So, and as I say, I never spoke to, to anybody about who I was and what happened to me. And in 1986, so after a long time, over 40 years, the first Anne Frank exhibition, which was created in Amsterdam, came to, to London. And of course, I was invited. Um, it was Ken Livingston, who people say is anti-Semitic. He organized this. Oh, and right. I, always, I always say, no, he's not. He was very, very uh, supportive of us. And I was then already with Anne Frank um, uh, people in Amsterdam active and um, so um, and they had a head table with uh, other people speaking and he said come and sit with us at the head table which I did I thought why not and at the end after everybody had spoken he said and now evil we want to say something to you I was wanting to hide under the table I'd never spoken about my experience in a crowd of 300 people. Um, you know, I didn't know what to say. So I got up and 
looked and looked. I was desperate, but then suddenly the gates opened and I could didn't stop. And that was for me a big, big change of attitude of everything. Right. And then this exhibition traveled all over England and I was always asked to open it and say something. Well, I wasn't a public speaker. I was still very shy. So my husband wrote a speech which I read very badly and <laughs> but eventually found my own voice. So that was my change. And then I met at the Anna Frank organization. They were here um, trying to teach about the Holocaust and um, still exist and a Frank funds. And, um, and there was a, from Germany, if you, there was still, you had to go in the army, but you could go and work at a charity. And there were some young people from Germany who came to work here in London at the Anna Frank Center. And I met one of those young men and a very nice 18 year old boy and he saw my tattoo on the arm and he started to cry and i said what's the matter with you he said can you ever forgive me and i said why what have you done he said well i'm german and i said well you are not guilty it has nothing to do with you and he said, but, but it was my grandfather who was a Nazi. I said, yeah, but you are your own. You have nothing to do with you. I really don't hate you. I don't mind what, what you're doing. What you... That was my first pleasant encounter with a German. And then I spoke in a German school in um, Richmond. It's a big German school. And I gave a talk. And I sat and we had lunch with the children. 14 year old children and I sat next to a young boy and I asked him do you mix with the English people here as well he said well no not really our parents know the parents of other children and so we mix really more in German circles the only time we mix with English people is when we play in, in another school football against mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. and then he started to cry and I said to him, why are you crying? He said, and, and they still call me the Nazi, a 14-year-old boy. And he said, I, I haven't done anything. I, I was, I'm not a Nazi. I never was a Nazi. Why, you know, and he was so upset. And again, I said to him, um, you're perfectly right. You don't have to be embarrassed. You are innocent. You haven't done anything. So, and then I started to realize all those things, but why I really started to accept what has happened was I spoke once in Weimar, which is again, a center of Germany with a lot of culture, um, Goethe, Schiller, all lived there. And um, there was a castle and I spoke in this castle. And um, the next day I got in a letter in the hotel where I was staying from a German woman. And she wrote, she was with her daughter listening to my talk. And then when they got home, they were still up and talking about this. They said, we didn't really know much about all this. And um, then my daughter asked me, what did Opa do? grandfather what did he do in the war and I said he was a Nazi he killed many many people 
he, he fought in Russia as well. He killed many, many Russian civilians and soldiers. And um, when he came back, he used to be a teacher. He could not teach anymore. He uh, occupied himself only with philosophy and religion. I didn't really have a father. He never talked to me. He never smiled at me. He never took notice of me. He was a completely depressed person. And I talked with my daughter about all this, and she was furious. But I hope eventually she will accept that this is well, what had happened. And um, she thanked me because she hadn't talked to her husband about who the father was, nor to her children. So she thanked me that it is now in the open and she can breathe again. She said it was a burden for her, her whole married life. And I was thinking about this letter a long time. And then I sent a letter to her and I said, I don't think your father was a bad man. But this is what happened in wars. You start to do things which you would never ever dream of you could do. And of course, she thanked me and we had her correspondence for some time. And then that was actually the first time that I realized, well, even if they did terrible things, it wasn't perhaps their own initiative. It was sort of the time they were forced to do things and it was certainly not all bad people. And then I really started for the first time to accept in a way what the Germans have done. And it was a relief for me. And yeah, it, it certainly changed my whole attitude to, to anything that is happening now in the world as well. Thank you, Eva. Uh, those are... Uh... Very uh, profound words, which uh, I will listen to. But let me ask you this specific question. Um, my last interview was with the Hungarian ambassador to the UK. His name is Ferenc Kumin. He is a cultured, knowledgeable man with a great deal of menschkeit, I think is the word, knowledge of the Jewish community in Hungary, the Jewish community in New York, many of whom, of course, are of Hungarian descent. I'm thinking of Satmar and, of course, Chabad, Romanian as well. And uh, he knew a lot uh, from his time as consul general in dealing with um, the religious Jews of, of New York. And he certainly helped in organizing the return of long abandoned graveyards in Hungary uh, for the Williamsburg uh, Satmar people to go on pilgrims again, to go and visit their old uh, Rabonim. I only did the interview because he referred to the Hungarian Holocaust, that he took responsibility that Hungarian officials and the government were involved in the murder of 434,000 Hungarian Jews between May and July 1944, just nine or ten very, very appalling weeks towards the end of the Second World War. I just um, want to interrupt you a minute. We yeah. arrived in May and my mother and me were uh, chosen then to work in Canada. I don't know if you've heard that. That was a nickname, Canada being good and plenty and so on, um, where all the things which the transport took because we were naked 
We had to leave everything and it was all taken to this place called Canada and we had to sort out the things. Uh, it was taken all back to Germany. And I saw those Hungarian Jews coming because Canada was next to the train where those people arrived. Wow. And there was very few selections. And most of those Hungarian Jews, I saw that, went straight to be guests. But that that's exactly partly my life because we worked for three weeks in Canada till the transport were not coming anymore. And we had more food because we found food and it wasn't heavy work and so on. So, and I felt feel sometimes guilty because of those people were killed and were collected. Then May, June, I had a better job. But of course, somebody else would have done it if I wouldn't have done it. 80% of the Hungarian Jews in that short period of time were sent straight to their deaths. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, you were an actual eyewitness to that. My, my question is a very, very simple one. How do I make peace with this knowledgeable and cultured man in full, because he is a supporter of Israel. Hungary is quite a fervent supporter of Israel with inside the European Union. They are often outliers against the other 27 nations. I hear it regularly. Orban and Netanyahu are on very, very good terms. There's a lot of cooperation. And yet, I think about my great-grandparents and am I desecrating their memory by reaching out to make peace? You know, that, that, that's something that I need your coaching on to yeah. uh, understand forgiveness. Well, um, does, does this man feel guilty? I don't think so. What do you think? Well, you know, I, you know, I, you I never haven't asked him. You haven't asked him. He wasn't in tears as such, but he showed a deep sadness and regret, not only at the responsibility that he felt he should say on behalf of Hungary, but also that he should, from a moral perspective, and because of the past, reach out to the Jews of the world and the Israelis. And when he said you have a moral drive, you don't need to think, you just do. Um, and these are very, very powerful words. And obviously, they are not universal words uh, spoken by the entire nation of Hungary, but they came from him. And I took them on face value. We are in touch now, yeah. myself and the ambassador. But I'm grateful that we have an Israel. And, you know, I think Germany as a whole, um, they have helped to build up Israel. They've given an enormous amount of money. And again, a lot of German people went to work on the kibbutz that helped there. And um, they have apologized for what they have done. And um, they still pay out money. At least, you know, they have realized what they've done. Austria, on the other hand, they were actually even bigger Nazis. Many in the camps, the heads of the camps, the commanders were very Austrian. In Treblinka, it was an Austrian man, for instance. And even the murder of the disabled German children was done by Austrian Nazis. And they say they were victims themselves, which is, of course, not true. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so in, from Germany, obviously, they have accepted their guilt 
and I can forgive them. Austria less because they still think it wasn't really their doing, but it was very much their doing as well. Which brings us on to the question about older Nazis towards the end of their lives showing absolutely no remorse for what they did. The question in the paradigm of your forgiveness, can you forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven? who doesn't care. Well, I, I talked about this with the rabbi. I think like Germany in general, the German people who are sorry for what has done, yes, I certainly have forgiven them. I've traveled a lot back to Germany. I've given talks to children all very, very interested, very sorry about what has happened and feel guilty from what their grandparents have done. And um, But if they don't uh, admit that they have done terrible things, I think those must be evil people. And in my opinion, they don't deserve our forgiveness. Ever. If I can come oh, in... The rabbi will have to say... <laughs> I, just, I just want to come back to, you know, watching this uh, interview. Um, obviously, um, Johnny, uh, you know, well done for probing and all those questions. And listening to Eva, I could listen to Eva uh, for a long, long time. Um, you see, what, what comes across the screen and every time I speak to you and to your audiences around the world, I'm sure is, a very positive um, disposition. There's great energy, good energy coming out of you. And this is from a person who has experienced at the tender young age in your early teens, some of the most horrific sufferings known to man. I mean, experiencing Auschwitz, um, your father, losing your father, your dear brother. Um, how does a person manage um, to be so positive, um, such a good outlook, um, notwithstanding those very, very difficult experiences? Do you move on? Have you dealt with the past? Are you still hurting? Have, how, how, how does it work? Well, I, I love life. I enjoy life. Most of it, not so much now, of course, with the lockdown we have, but in general, I make little things fun. I um, adore children, you know, I go out to the park, I see all those little toddlers. It gives me happiness. Um, yes, and I would say I'm a happy person. So I, I got over, but at night sometimes I still think how I miss my father, how I miss my brother. I miss even Austria, but I, I have made peace with what has happened. I find your generation astounding. This, the, the, these are the very uh, emotions, experiences, and future orientations of my grandma, Oliver Shalom. She was nonstop positive, always looked to the future, spent time looking at old TV archive. If ever there was a black and white Second World War picture, I would see her scrunching her eyes up, looking for her parents, as if that would that little shot on TV would produce a bit of evidence for her. She just didn't know exactly what happened to her. And yet she looked at me, she squeezed my hand, she looked at everything she had created and she kept to her Judaism and her identity. Please God, never experience what you did, but I... I uh, the, the, your generation are, I mean, genuinely for me, I'm lucky to have known 
this generation for so long. And thank you. Um, Eva, let me let me just um, come in. You know, finally, we're, like as I mentioned, we're uh, a few days before Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur, in one word, a key word would be forgiveness. Um, we ask God to forgive us, and God tells us, "If you forgive each other, if you forgive my children, then I will forgive you." Um, there's lots of people who uh, are hurt in in much less significant ways than you have been. And yet it's so large in their lives for them to bear the grudge and have the hate and not forgive. Um, what message during this period would you um, convey to all people, to all people who have some anger and hate in the heart as to how to overcome that and how to forgive and how to be positive and how to move? Well, hate poisons your own life. And that I learned already very young from Otto Frank, because as I say, um, he came to our house 1947, 48, 49, when I was full of hatred. And he, who had lost everything, he always came and said, the only thing I possess is the clothes I have on my body. I lost everything. And I lost my whole family. And I don't hate the Germans. And I always said, but how can you? It's impossible. You must be full of hatred. I said, no, I, I just can't hate. And they said, if you hate people, who suffers? You, the people you hate, they don't know that you hate them. They don't, you know, they carry on mm -hmm. with their life, feeling very yes. happy about what they've done. But you are, you are become miserable and, uh, and live a bad yeah, you know, you can't function. But hate is a terrible thing. And I realized that, but I could still not throw it off. It took me a long, long time to throw it off. But nevertheless, I have enjoyed what was around me. I, li I like, I love life. And that helped me to that dark period as well. And I, like Otto, he said to me, don't hate because you will suffer, not the other people. That is what I can tell now to other people. Hate doesn't help you at all. It only destroys you. So you will feel much, much better if you forgive. It's for your own sake even, not only for the people you forgive, but for your own sake. Hate and jealousy destroys you. You know, I mentioned, I think, to you before, that there is a great um, anecdote from the third Lubavitcher Rebbe who says, how come children sometimes get into fights and five, 10 minutes later, they make up um, with people. Yet adults, um, they get into fights and there's broigus and there's anger. And sometimes for 10, 20 years, they still don't talk to each other. <laughs> so the question he asks is, adults are intelligent, children less so. It should be the other way around. And he gave a very simple insight. He says, children would rather be happy than be right. Adults would rather be right than be happy. And, um, and Eva, when I, when I look at you and when anyone looks at you, as you said before, you chose life, you know, over death. And, and all those negative characteristics are really traits of, of death and destructiveness, as you said, because hate anger really destroys life 
and and not the life of someone else, but more so your own life. Life, your own life. Uh, as Otto taught you. So obviously, again, during this period of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, where the key word, another key word is to choose life. And we ask God to inscribe us in the book of life. Life means to live life, means to say to have those positive traits and to try and rid ourselves as best as possible from those negative traits, which only serve to destroy us. Yes, if people can forgive, they will feel much happier in their own life. And why shouldn't they want to achieve that? Why do they want to be bitter in hate? That's for their own good. It's a win-win situation ever, right? The other person who you forgive feels better and you also feel better. So who wouldn't want a win-win? That's right, that's right. Thank you very much, Eva, for joining us tonight and sharing with us, as always, those, those stories from the past, really. Um, but they come alive um, as you speak them with, uh, you know, from the heart, words that come from the heart enter the heart. But most importantly, that, that beautiful, good energy, that energy of life, that energy of positivity. Um, I understand many parts of the states where you've spoken. A friend of mine told me um, over 5,000 people in the audience have come to hear you. And now I understand why, because people want uh, to hear from someone like you who breathes, you know, good energy. This is good energy from, from, from the darkest experiences and the message of forgiveness. And uh, I'd like to wish all our audience at this auspicious time in the year and during these challenging times that we should all uh, be inscribed in the book of life and we should be blessed with overwhelming blessings for good health and genuine happiness, which comes as a result of forgiveness and much prosperity um, in our times. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Johnny. And thank you, Rabbi. We will meet soon again, I hope. I really hope so. Thank you very much. This was uh, a very special hour. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.